0: The title of today's sermon is Divinely Prepared to Receive God's Presence and Power, looking at the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from chapter 1, verse 21, through to chapter 2, verse 13. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two: Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because Everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we'll look here uh, today at God's unfolding plan and this moment in history, how the Lord had prepared for this moment, and we'll see what kind of preparations had occurred through history, what kind of preparations God had done in the life of this local assembly, because that's what this is, the first one right there. In Jerusalem, And then we'll look at the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, and the proclamation of the Spirit here in verses 1 through 4. And then as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. So, verse 1, God's unfolding plan. The text says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Let's look at this idea of had fully come. It means to fill completely like filling up the hold of a ship, to complete entirely, to be fulfilled, and it's used of time. And in the New Testament, it's only used three times, and every time it's used, it's used by Luke. First, in chapter 8, verse 23, I'm going to read the surrounding verses also. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed... He fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy, and there's the word, they were filling, that's the boat was filling up with water. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing, right? The boat is full of water. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. There's a lot to that. But the key idea here that I'm emphasizing is how the boat was filled with water. And that teaches us the meaning of this word. Luke 9.51, this idea has been presented to us once before. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. So he had fulfilled that portion of his ministry. And it was time to head south to Jerusalem to be there for the Passion Week and ultimately for His ascension. So just like the disciples' boat was filling completely with water and about to sink, so also this moment that we're looking at today, on the day of Pentecost, in that special year, was filled up with all of the necessary prior events for this new set of events to begin to occur. God's unfolding plan has occurred just as the Lord had foreordained. Now, with all the pieces of the puzzle Perfectly in place. Okay, so a bit of background about the Feast of Pentecost, okay? As we read this text from Leviticus, I want us to note how Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost are all linked together. They're all together and are to be celebrated each year over and over again. And and as we go forward and we look in the book of Revelation and the things that are proclaimed about Jesus, we're going to see these ideas presented to us in that sequence. So, it's a lot of reading from Leviticus, so... Here we go. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So there's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So now we're going to read about the description of that. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Which Sabbath? The Sabbath at the end as a part of the Passover week. So there it's connected, and it's called first fruits. You see that? First fruits is mentioned right there. And now we're going to go on to describe that first fruits. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one fourth of a hen. You shall. Eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. And it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all dwellings. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh, seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring forth your dwellings from your dwellings, two waves, two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. So you see, the idea of first fruits is present in both of those. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So you see how these... Feasts are connected together from Passover to unleavened bread to first fruits and then to Pentecost. You see all of this. So Christ himself, he has come and he has fulfilled the feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. During that particular year that we're talking about, the moment we're looking at. He came and in that year, he fulfilled all of these feasts in his body. And I believe it's probably AD 30 is the most likely year that this occurred. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand. After he did this, he ascended to the Father's right hand. And then there's the ten days of prayer, word, and completion. We looked at that before. They've been in prayer. They've been in the word. They've been brought back to twelve. And they have been brought to a certain point to be ready for the outpouring of the Spirit. So let's think about this. Jesus has fulfilled the Passover as the perfect Lamb of God upon the cross. Offering himself up to God taking every last drop of God's wrath upon himself on behalf of his people, on on behalf of his elect. No more wrath for you and me. No more wrath for the people of God because he came and he suffered and he fulfilled the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. Jesus also fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the sinless one who has granted to us all of his perfect righteousness. The leaven of sin has been removed from us His people. When we rejoice in the forgiveness of sin, it's not uh, a myth, it's not an academic thing. God has taken away our sin and he has given us the righteousness of Christ. The feast of unleavened bread fulfilled in his people. Jesus has also fulfilled the feast of first fruits by rising from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead, conquering death for his people. The fear of death has been removed from God's people. We have no fear of death anymore. We will rise up from the dead. And so the father of all fears, death, has been removed from our lives so we can be utterly fearless people by God's grace. And God's people have been in prayer. So looking at that little band of believers at that time, they have been in prayer. They've been in the word. We saw how Peter preached to them about how to know uh, what was going on with Judas, and picking someone to replace Judas. And they've been walking in obedience, so they did what God's word said. And they replaced the one that was missing, Judas. And they've all embraced their mutual mission to be witnesses of Christ as crucified, fulfillment of Passover. And resurrected, fulfillment of first fruits. And witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom preaching repentance and remission of sins, unleavened bread, to the whole world beginning at Jerusalem. So they are together because they have, each one of them has their sights set on Christ. Each one of them has their sights set on His kingdom, which He spoke to them for 40 days about. That's what's going on at this moment. So Pentecost Day in this particular year has arrived. These things have occurred amongst this group of people. And it's time for the great harvest to begin. Right? So Pentecost is the feast of the harvest, is what it's called. What's happening now is the harvest of God's elect. This is the age of the harvest of God's people. The whole world will be brought into the power of first fruits. The power, another way it's phrased, of the regeneration work of the Holy Spirit of God. Another way of saying it is this is that now we live in the age that Jesus calls the regeneration. So Jesus has ascended. At this point in time. And he is enthroned at God's right hand over all things. And and I invite you to look at Revelation 4 and 5. This is exactly what we see. Revelation 4 is John seeing the Father on his throne. The whole chapter is about the Father on his throne. And then chapter 5 is Jesus coming to be enthroned, being placed at the Father's right hand. And we're going to look at both of those texts today. So Jesus has ascended. He's enthroned at God's right hand over all things. And it is time... On this day, to begin the age of the regeneration, heaven is coming to earth starting that day to bring forth by His Holy Spirit God's presence and God's power in and through His redeemed people. They had a lot. They looked like a really great church, but they didn't have what they needed yet. Note in Revelation how Christ fulfilling these key feasts is directly referenced As I read this to you, think about these feasts. The scroll Jesus takes has been fulfilled by Jesus himself. What is this scroll? It is the Old Testament. He's the only one that can unseal it. He is the Son who has come, the Father speaking to us by his Son. He's the only one that can give us the New Testament, the completion of the Word of God. The scroll Jesus takes has been fulfilled by himself. And note the reference to the Holy Spirit being sent out into all the earth as we read this text the very horns and eyes of Christ the Lamb. Look at how the Spirit is described here. Revelation 5, 1 through 10. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. I believe that is the Old Testament that has been closed up until this time. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its Seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, it had to be new, because this is the first time this has ever happened. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. What's that? That's Passover. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, And we shall reign on the earth. This earthly reign is the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Preparation had been fully completed by God in heaven and also, as we will see, on earth. So they're divinely prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Really, Get into this idea with me, please. Note how the Lord had prepared his people to receive his Holy Spirit that he would pour out from heaven's throne on this great day of history. With one accord. What does this Greek word mean? It means with one mind, with one accord, with one passion. They all have one focus and one purpose. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, this word. 11 by Luke, and all of them in the book of Acts. The other usage is by Paul in Romans 15, 6. So let this sink in a little bit. We've already said Acts is a book about the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom book. It's God's kingdom plan for the unfolding of the revelation and the advancement of his kingdom in the earth. But what does the kingdom of God look like as it advances in the earth in the book of Acts? Here's what it looks like. It looks like the people of God dwelling together with one mind, with one accord, with one single-minded, focused passion that they share together. Those are the 11 verses in Acts. I've listed them there. And you can see it goes all the way through the majority of the book of Acts. Chapter 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, 8, 12, 15, 18, and 29. This is the mark of the people in the kingdom of God as it advances so what is this one mind what is this one accord what is this one passion of the early church on this first Pentecost day do you want to be like them do you want to have that mind do you want us as a church to have that mind I think we all long for that don't we so what is it it's very simple they are all focused together on Christ their king and his kingdom And they are dedicated to obeying his kingdom commandment as an expression of their love for him and his kingdom. That's it. See, he spoke to them for 40 days after his resurrection. And they listened. And they believed him. And they understood what he was saying. And they laid aside every other life purpose. All other loves. All other passions. And they embraced the king's path. These folks have been brought to an understanding of the purpose for their existence Christ and they loved him and they wanted to serve him they understood that Jesus had come as the messiah they understood that Jesus himself had fulfilled the passover he had fulfilled unleavened bread he had fulfilled first fruits and they knew that pentecost was coming so they would be empowered by god's presence and power at pentecost to complete the single passion that fully gripped all their minds. The passion to do God's will by engaging in Christ's kingdom commandments. They were ready to go. They were of one accord. They were were focused, but they knew they had to wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them because they had to go in Christ's presence and they had to go in Christ's power. See, they had been taught in Luke 24 as we've seen then he said to them these are the words which i spoke to you while i was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms concerning me so they're learning about jesus they're fixed on jesus and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures so god had brought them to this common understanding of his word about jesus what did they learn then he said to them thus it is written And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There's Passover, there's first fruit. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And therein lies an allusion to the power and the pouring out of the Spirit unto the ends of the earth. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power. From on high. So they were ready. They understood. They were of one accord. They'd been praying together. They'd been in the word together. They'd been obeying God together. They were ready. So I want us to note the importance of a body of believers being of one mind. Of one purpose. Of one passion. All in accord together around this purpose. This single purpose. In order to be ready to receive the spirit of God. Put simply, they are all together in love towards Christ. And so his desires, his commands, his ways are their highest mutual community desires. Now, it's important uh, that I point out here that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit began then and has continued ever since then for the people of God, for every Christian on earth. We don't have to go through this again. The Holy Spirit is being poured out from heaven on every single believer on earth. But the question is. Are we quenching or grieving the Spirit? It's not that we have to receive a second blessing. It's not how we, we have to get a new dose of the Holy Spirit. No. The Holy Spirit is promised to the people of God. Who belong to God. Who are His. And He is pouring out His Holy Spirit in and through His people. Just like we see in the book of Acts unless we're quenching or grieving the Spirit. So I want us to note how the loss of this community single-mindedness, the loss of this first love, will lead to loss of the Spirit's presence and power. Very, very important to note this. Such a community can continue to do many good things, but they will not have God's presence and power to overcome the enemies of God. You see? Revelations 2, verses 1 through 7. It was written in the late, late 60s by John, uh, given this revelation by the Holy Spirit, written to that church at that time, to the church of Ephesus at that time, to the angel, of, and I believe angel means messenger or mediator of the presbytery there at Ephesus, uh, the if you will, the uh, moderator of the presbytery in that city at that time. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So what are these lampstands? What do they represent? The glow, the fire. This is the Holy Spirit. These lampstands represent the Holy Spirit. And the word of God. I know your works, your labor, your patience. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience. And have labored, labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. So they've done a lot of good things. They've persevered. They've stuck to the truth. They've had the courage to carry out church discipline against those who deserved it. Sounds like a good church. They did some good things. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, He who has an ear, hear. Let him who hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this church at Ephesus is an example of a church that was doing good things, but had lost its first love. See, I think that's a good way of describing what's going on here amongst this early church gathering there in Jerusalem on the first day of Pentecost. They had not lost their first love. They were fully engaged with their first love. Christ and His glory and His kingdom. And God is patient when a church drifts away from Christ. And He warned them. He said, you've done these good things. He wants to commend them and encourage them. But He also warned them. He said, you need to repent and return to your first love. Do the the works that you did at first. So, brothers and sisters, we can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 talks about quenching. Ephesians 4.30 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. By turning away from Christ as our heart's love and Christ's kingdom as our first pursuit. So we are commanded to endeavor for the unity of the Spirit. Think about it. I want us to note how Paul makes this the first commandment that he gives to the church at Ephesus after he's laid out the great doctrines of the faith in chapters one through three chapters one through three he's taught them the great foundations of doctrine of our faith and then in chapter four as is his habit he turns the corner and he says okay in light of all of this truth in light of who you are in light of your calling and he gives them commandments Ephesians 4 1 through 6 I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you do that? You remember this together. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Note that the path to peace is not focusing on one another. The path to peace is not focusing on the state of our relationships with one another. The path to peace is found in the unity of the Spirit and focusing upon God and His glory and His kingdom and letting, by His grace, Our our view of Him get clearer and clearer and clearer with each passing day. And our understanding of doing His kingdom work clearer and clearer with each passing day. And what does that do? That brings us together. That's how we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And of course, if there's relationship problems, we deal with them. But there will be relationship problems that are irreconcilable if we do not have this common focus and purpose in our hearts. Jesus himself and his glory and his kingdom. Now, I also hope that we will see that God gives us lowliness and gentleness and patience to bear with one another these Christian qualities, this, this character that we need, so that we are made able to lay aside our own passions, our own desires, our own pettiness, our own rivalries that can pop up, our own short-sighted desires. And we learn to reject unnecessary controversies and unnecessary conflicts in order unto, unto remaining of one mind together upon Christ and his kingdom. Thus, being made able to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, you see, gentleness, lowliness, humility isn't so people can talk about how gentle and lowly and humble you are. <laughs> or me, or any of us. It is unto being the kind of person that can be a part of a team that has one mind. That can be a part of a team that is one accord. That is gripped by this single purpose. And be brought into him. He must increase. We must decrease. Note the word endeavoring. I hope that this endeavoring idea will grip us. It is to hasten, to make haste, to exert oneself, to give diligence unto. And remember, it's giving diligence unto first our first love. First unto Christ. First unto his word. First unto his commandments. First unto his kingdom and his ways. And being gripped with his purpose. Endeavoring in that one faith, one Lord, one baptism, endeavoring to remain focused on Him. And of course, we're also, by that, brought into the bonds of peace with one another through that common goal that we have. And I would, I would venture to say that apart from being gripped like they were with that one accord, you can count on church split after church split after church split. If there's anything that brings us together as a local assembly other than Christ and His glory and His kingdom we will not be held together. So going on what do we see next? We see the power of the Holy Spirit of God brought upon these people who've been prepared brought from heaven heaven's preparation is complete and now it begins. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Suddenly These assembled saints of God, all in one place, they're all with one mind and one purpose, one heart, they hear this great sound. The day of Pentecost begins with a great sound. And it was from above, from heaven, a sound that they knew was coming from above, coming down into the house where they were sitting together. And this sound was not a wind, it was not a wind, but it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Okay? So, like God gave visible form to the Spirit when Jesus was anointed, the dove that was seen was like a dove, God gives audible evidence of the arrival of the Holy Spirit and this sound made them think of a rushing, a mighty wind. And this sound was filling up the place where they met just like the time had been filled up for this moment. The promise of the Father arrives with this great sound in their midst. And we see later that the sound was heard. Not just there. So this great day of Pentecost marks the beginning of a new era, brothers and sisters. A recreation of what has been lost. A reconstituted people of the second Adam, who is Jesus, who is now reigning, who is now carrying out God's foreordained plan. Now we are receiving from heaven what Adam lost. This mighty wind points back to the almighty voice of God at creation. Wind. The voice of God. Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in chapter 2 we read in Genesis. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So while there wasn't a wind present. They were all thinking about wind. Breath. Also note the power of the Holy Spirit alluded to. So mighty, this word mighty gets us to power, thinking of the power of the Spirit. Listen again to Revelation 5. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this arrival of the Holy Spirit emphasizes The creative power of God that none can resist. Seven gets to the idea of perfection. It's fullness. It's immeasurable. It's limitless. And seven horns. Horns are all about power. So if there's seven horns, this is perfect, full, immeasurable, limitless, invincible power. And then and seven eyes would give us the same idea of perfect, limitless wisdom and knowledge. So his power is not only limitless, but it's always perfectly on target because of his wisdom and his knowledge. So with this great and mighty sound from heaven as the sound of the wind, the limitless power of God to bring life over death and order from chaos is brought to mind. God is here at this moment beginning the application of the blood of Christ to the entire cosmos. It is the beginning of the age Of what Jesus calls the regeneration. In Matthew 18.28. So Jesus said to them. Assuredly I say to you. That in the regeneration. When the son of man sits on the throne of his glory. You who have followed me. Will also sit on twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We see the reconstituted faithful Israel. In the apostles. But it's not just the power of God. God's presence is with them. It's not just victory over sin and victory over evil. It's also comfort and joy and sanctification in the presence of God himself. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. So after the Spirit's presence is announced with the sound of the mighty rushing wind from heaven the Spirit's presence is visibly demonstrated to all the believers when God seats Divided tongues like fire upon each individual that is present. The Spirit has now, at this moment, come upon the entire community of believers, and they can all see it. God gives them not only audible evidence, but visible evidence. And this visible evidence is also teaching them a lot. And the Spirit has come on each individual believer. So it's not one giant flame burning over the whole building, okay, and it's not just a, a flame on some of the people. It's a flame on every single person that was present. That's what the text tells us man, woman, married, single, old, young. They all got a flame. What does it look like? It looks like a cloven or a divided tongue. That is the fiery shape. One fiery shape on each person. There's one tongue on each person, and it's divided. It's shaped like a tongue, yet it's a cloven tongue, like a split tongue. And this word for tongue is the same word that we'll look at that's used in verse 4. So it's clearly a tongue that they see. So the initial, visible appearance of the Holy Spirit is a tongue. What is the purpose of the tongue? We speak a language with our tongue. The tongue is the organ of communication that allows us to create the various unique sounds that go into making a unique language with meaning that is audible to our hearers and understandable to those who share this language with us. The emphasis here, brothers and sisters, is upon communication. It's upon truth, being able to deliver truth in clarity. God's Working here is undoing deception, lies, confusion. They've been in the world for so long. His gospel will come and bring the truth. And we will be those who are the messengers of it. Each person in the regeneration is to give a clear message of the gospel of the kingdom to their part of the world. That's what this is showing to us. Everywhere we go, we are to be those who have tongues aflame by the Spirit's power. Let's look at fire and God. I'm going to go through this quickly. We see Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Exodus 13, God's leading in the wilderness. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He didn't take away the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And then Exodus 19, God on Mount Sinai at the first Pentecost. And this, when we look at Revelation 4, you're going to see the, the similarities between the first Sinai and Revelation chapter 4 before the Lamb arrives. So, so Mount Sinai is like Pentecost without the blood of Christ. Mount Sinai is like Pentecost without mercy. That's why they couldn't touch it. That's why they couldn't get near it. But we got Mount Zion now where the Lamb reigns, and we're welcome. see the difference? This is the change that took place because of Jesus. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And then later in Exodus 24, verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So when they looked at that mountain, there was a big fire on the top of it and the smoke was always going up. Leviticus 9, moving from there now to the idea of the tabernacle and the temple and who we are and what this moment in time teaches us about what God did. God lights the fire of the tabernacle there in Leviticus 9. The fire came from heaven. The fire of the tabernacle came from heaven. Nadab and Abihu discovered this and how important this is to God. Earthly fire will not do. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. The fire represents God's power from heaven. The Holy Spirit himself poured out upon his people. And in this scene, we see how grievous and offensive it is to God when we try to do things to create Holy Spirit kind of work. Instead of humbling ourselves and staying focused on who he is and crying out to him to walk in his spirit. 2 Chronicles 7 same kind of thing happens. Solomon prays and the fire comes from heaven, from God, from heaven. And that fire is lit by God. And that's the fire they were supposed to keep burning 24-7 every day because that's the fire from God. Hebrews 12, brothers and sisters, the God we worship on, the God we worship is on Mount Zion. And he is a consuming fire. And we see that at the end for our God is a a consuming fire there in verse 29 of chapter 12. Now, the fire teaches us about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God and the work of God in His people and through His people. So what does it teach us that the fire at that moment came and was placed on each person? 1 Corinthians 6.19 opens this up for us. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And then 2 Corinthians 6.16, you are the temple of the living God. And in Revelation 4, verses 1-5, through 5, we see this fire also not just associated with Jesus, but also associated with God the Father. After these things I looked, and behold, this is verses 1-5, through 5, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you, the th- show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a Sardinious stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so we see there the Holy Spirit of God associated with God the Father as well. And that is the scene that is set in preparation for the arrival of the Son of God who has been ascended in Revelation 5 to take his throne because he is the one who has fulfilled all that needed to be fulfilled. So the divided tongue as a fire placed upon each believer shows us that the temple of God is now defined as every believer. I believe if God would give us eyes, we would see these tongues today upon each and every believer in Christ. God dwells within each of his people and dwells in a way that destroys sin, that destroys evil, and does this via clear proclamation of the truth of the gospel Fire burns up that which needs to be removed from us. Fire gives us light and shows us the path we need to walk. Fire gives warmth and light to those who are going on to salvation. God, by His Holy Spirit, is making us holy by the fire of His Spirit. But fire also brings death and destruction to God's enemies. And this is why, brothers and sisters, when we are filled with the Spirit and we are walking in His ways and we are being this demonstration, this clear communication of the gospel to the world around us, that there are some who will hate us. We should expect that. And you know what we do? We love those who persecute us. We pray for those who hate us. And we are filled with compassion and love. That's what we do. So what happens next in verse 4? We see not only the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit, but we see also the proclamation of, of the Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I don't know about you, but I have been through a lot of confusion on this topic in my lifetime. And I think it's good, probably maybe you have as well, I think it's good just to come back and just to just focus on the text. The very first fruit of the presence of the filling of the Holy Spirit of God was for the believers... To speak according to how the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke the word of God. Let that sink in. The very first fruit exhibited in the lives of these believers was that they spoke God's word. Please let this sink in. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit leads to opening of the mouth and speaking God's. Next, note the miraculous. They were made able not just to speak God's word in a language they understood, but they were able suddenly, miraculously, and this is crystal clear in the text that follows. Suddenly, miraculously, they were able to have sounds come out of their mouth. They were able to speak with their tongues, with their throat, with their lungs. They produced words from other languages that they did not know. Suddenly, they were given the ability to speak in another language, miraculously. Languages that they had never learned before. This is a great miracle. What does it do? What does it do? It does a lot of things, but practically, the thing it does practically, is it reverses the curse of the Tower of Babel. That was a great curse on mankind that God put on them. And if you think about it, that was also the gift of tongues. They all learned miraculously to speak a new language. They just didn't speak one another's languages anymore. God reverses it. That great confusion was brought to thwart and slow and retard the wickedness of mankind. And now that we're in the new age, in the age of regeneration, where we can speak the gospel, which is the power of God, he is reversing that curse. And he did it miraculously here. So what was the outcome? It made the gospel of the kingdom rapidly accessible to all the world and it's, I believe, one of the biggest reasons why we saw such a huge, massive, fast growth of the kingdom of God during the first century. Especially during the first um, 70 years prior to the closing of the canon because a lot of this is is connected with the idea of the canon being open and we'll look at that over time. This is accelerating the work of the kingdom. That's the main picture. It's accelerating, it's not, it's not some just vague sideshow that God gave. No, it is central to the idea of the gospel of the kingdom that we are called to proclaim with clarity as God's people. And as we will see in future sermons, this miraculous event was also foretold in the Old Testament and it serves as a great encouragement to the faithful And a great warning of judgment to the enemies of the gospel. So let's think about this with some questions, as usual. Do you see yourself as a part of God's perfect unfolding plan in this earth? And do you rejoice to be a part of it? See, this is a part of that single-mindedness that we're after together. Next, what does it mean to be with one accord, with one mind with one passion. Well, we've looked at that, right? And I hope that we'll all really ponder that together. It means to be focused on Christ, our first love, and His kingdom. and For our hearts to be more and more given over to Him and His ways. It's the opposite of being distracted and drawn into our own pleasures and our own desires and brought, drawn into the ways of this world and treating Christ as a little slice of the pie and His kingdom as a little bit of a a priority. So are you single-minded with your whole being fixed upon Christ and his kingdom? Have you drifted from your first love? How's our church doing with these questions? Are we of one accord? Are we of one mind, one passion, one purpose focused together upon our Lord and his ways? Do you see how a church can do a lot of good things, even be commended by Christ, yet be in jeopardy of losing the Spirit and no longer being a church? That's important to see. Have you thought about what it means to quench or to grieve the Spirit? I think at the heart of this is to lose our first love and to have our hearts drift away from Him and His kingdom and to get distracted by this world and get distracted by... The things of this world. that We have to deal with food and clothing and what's your job going to be and where you're going to live and the roof leak and all of these important things that we have to deal with. But these things can become idols to us. That's what I'm getting at. I think that's the essence of what it means to quench or grieve the Spirit is to not have a pure heart. Next. Do you see from this scripture... And just think about these early believers. Say, look, I want to be like them in many ways, right? What were they like? This isn't, like, this is the first church, right? This little church. This local assembly did some multiplying. (laughs) They were a church planting bunch. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Now, don't you want to be like them? Do you see how a community of one mind in the gospel, in prayer, in the word, obeying God in love as as he reveals things to them to obey, remains a place of the Spirit's outpouring. Stays away from quenching and grieving the Spirit. It is done with, with petty rivalries and self-focus and self-desire and is drawn up into doing His will together. And the Spirit flows. And the Spirit flows. And the Spirit flows. Do you understand that there is no second blessing that you're supposed to go and pursue? There's not some like waiting, tarrying prayer time that we need to go through to to make this happen. Right? There's there's a lot of bizarre things that have happened at meetings like that. And it's really strange fire if if we're not careful is what it is. Christ, our King, poured out His Holy Spirit upon His church at the beginning and He has never stopped. And it is a river getting deeper like we see in Ezekiel throughout history. But we, through our lack of focus, through our selfishness, through our sin, through getting caught up in things that don't matter and devoting our things to, our lives to things that are unimportant, we can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. Might be a good church, might be a good family, but you won't be having the sound of rushing wind in your life. You won't be having the fiery communication of the gospel so clear in your life. Do you see the difference? We need the spirit of God in us and through us for these movements like this in the earth of God's advancing kingdom. Okay, what's your responsibility? I want to give you a responsibility. Exert yourself without delay to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Exert yourself without delay, right? Of course, we believe in God's sovereignty, right? He is the one who has foreordained all things, right? But don't you dare think that that does anything to reduce your personal responsibility in the commandments that He's given to us, right? And so out of love for Christ, exert yourself, endeavor, strive, as we're told in Ephesians 4, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I think it's right there in Ephesians 4, The one, all the ones that are listed, that we focus ourselves on Jesus. That you endeavor, you do that without delay. And as we do that together, husbands, wives, as you do this, right? What is the the best premarital counsel you've ever heard? Grow closer to Jesus and you will grow closer to one another. Right? Well, it's not just true for husbands and wives. It's true for families. It's true for churches. It's true for everyone. Do you see the power of God at work in your life? Do you see things that go along with tongues of fire at work in your life? The boldness to communicate the gospel in clarity wherever you go and rising up each day with that as your purpose? Do you see God doing that in your life? Do you see the power and the presence of God at work in your life in this way? Do you see it in our church? I think we could see more. Uh, the question is, are you being sanctified? Are you being made holy? And are you rising up in each day, loving Christ and desiring to serve him and be a part of his kingdom? Another way of putting this is, do you see yourself as a living temple for the Lord? What was the purpose of the temple? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? One purpose. One purpose. To show forth the glory of God. To declare the praises and the glory and the honor of God. Is God consuming your sin, making you holy like him? Do the people around you say to you, hey, you know what? I think I see the the strongholds in your life. I think I see the strongholds in your life being torn down. I think I see you focused on Christ and his ways. And I think I see you becoming more like Christ. Is that what's happening in your life? Do you communicate the gospel with clarity and with charity in all of your life? Are we seeking first Christ's kingdom and righteousness because He is our first love? Is that what we're doing? May it be true for us individually, in our families, our marriages, and in our church. Amen. Unto His glory and carrying out His Great commission that he's given to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are looking to you again this Lord's day, rejoicing in who you are, in your glory, in your love to us, your people, in the forgiveness of our sin, in the outpouring of your Spirit. The work of your spirit in our minds by your word to bring us into love for Christ. Love for you, O God, and and love for our neighbors and growing desire to know and to do your will. God, we praise you and thank you for the way that you worked in these first Christians to bring them to one accord around who you are and around what you've said to them. We thank you for the way you poured out your spirit upon them, Lord Jesus Christ, from your throne. And we rejoice that you are still doing this in this world today. And we ask that we would be like these first Christians. Lord, it could be said of us that we are all together in one place, one mind, with one heart, and one purpose, and one passion. And that we would be those who are also receiving from your throne the unquenched, ungrieved, outpouring of your holy spirit upon us do this not only for our church but for all the churches in our denomination and throughout this entire world we ask father in jesus name amen